Hi, and welcome to EnviroCenter's Green Room. Meet the people on the front lines of climate action and find out what keeps them up at night. I'm Mandy, and this week we're joined by Michael Shank, Communications Director for Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, Mandy. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming. Uh, would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? Yes. Greetings, everyone. My name is Michael Shank. I am speaking from Vermont, where I live on a farm. I work for the Carbon Neutral Cities Alliance because I'm excited by city action. It's aggressive. It's ambitious. It's close to the community and is more impactful, I think, than some government or international action. So I'll talk more about that later in terms of inspiring behavior change. But why I like working with cities is that it's close to the community, they can act fast, and they can transition their grids faster than some national governments or international institutions. So that's why I work with cities. Check us out, carbonneutralcities.org is my organization. Great, thank you. Um, we asked all of our guests to bring one environmental fact to share. What have you brought with you today? Yeah, so Lund University, some folks may have seen it before, but Lund University did a study on the most impactful personal choices you can make. And I want to caveat this with, there's a lot of discussion in social media and in the climate space about what should we do, systems change or behavior change. And I want to say very categorically that we need both systems change and behavior change. And that's why I work with cities who are trying to change their systems, their urban systems. So that's my day job. And I think we do need to also focus on behavior change because we as customers can send a very clear signal to industries that we want those industries to change behavior, whether it's big ag or big energy, you name it. And so Lund University did a study on the most impactful personal decisions you can make to reduce your GHG footprint, your greenhouse gas emission footprint. And you can Google it. You could Google Lund University personal choices to reduce uh, your impact on climate change, and you'll see the visuals. And what fact resonates with me based on their study is that by having one less child, so instead of having three children, you have two children. Instead of having, instead of having four children, you have three children. Instead of having two children, you have one child. Having one less child is 30 times more impactful than the next personal decision you can make, whether it's living car-free, avoiding one round-trip transatlantic flight, buying green energy, eating plant-based diet. And I've been eating a plant-based diet for 20 plus years. And that is significantly less impactful than me having a smaller family. Now, I don't have kids and this isn't about um, <laughs> me weighing in on any listeners' right to have, have children, but it is interesting in terms of a fact, it is interesting for Lund University to do this study to quantify impact and to see that having one less child uh, is 30 times more impactful than the next personal decision you can make to lower your carbon footprint. Wow, that is really interesting. Thank you for bringing that forward. I will definitely Google it as per your suggestion. Um, so what problem, what climate problem keeps you up at night? Yeah, so it, this really is behavior change focused for me. So when I think of the fact that in 1950, we had two plus billion people on this planet and that we're well on our way to 8 billion and by 2050, we'll be close to 10 billion and by 2100, we'll be close to 11 billion people on this planet. I think about resource scarcity and resource wars that we're already seeing and whether it's water scarcity, water insecurity, or food scarcity, food insecurity. I 
I think about this all the time. Like, how are we going to feed everyone? How are we going to house everyone? How are we going to have resources for everyone? Let's say everyone wants to pursue, and I'm putting in quotes, the American dream. How are we going to have resources for everyone who wants to do that? Because everyone, understandably, would want to have a nice home, have safe shelter, have food on the on the table every day for their family. And so that keeps me up at night. How are we going to change our systems and behaviors in time to account for the 10 billion people that will live on this planet in just 30 years. So that's what keeps me up. So to that very large issue, what is the solution? Yeah, right. What do we do with that? Well, you know, Chatham House had a good study about livestock's impact. So let's think about other ways we can change our behaviors so that 10 billion people can live sustainably on this planet because we're headed in that direction. So we have to change our behaviors to account for the growing population, the demand on resources. So Chatham House did a study. If you just Google Chatham House livestock GHG footprint, they calculated quantifiably that one unit of protein from beef versus one unit of protein from plant-based protein is 150 times the GHG footprint that that plant-based unit of protein is. And so when we think about sustainable consumption, using food is just one example. Uh, how do we switch to plant-based diets so that we're using crops efficiently and we're feeding the world efficiently? And so that's the transition that's going to have to happen. And what, what I struggle with is to see people in the climate movement unwilling to change their consumption now to lead, to model, to socially norm that behavior within their circles. It's, I'm, I'm pretty amazed at how, and I'm not even asking the public this, I just want the climate community, the environmentally aware community to eat less beef, to eat less animal protein, because we know it's using more land, it's using more water, and it's using more grain that could more efficiently be used to raise crops to feed the world. So when I think about, all right, well, how do we change our resource consumption so that 10 billion people can live here in 30 years? One big ask that we haven't seen enough movement on, though there's more discussion about, which is great, is what we're eating and how we all more aggressively switch to plant-based diets so that we can use land uh, more efficiently as a result. So what do you think is in the way to us getting to that point? Yeah, status quo bias is is big because people think, oh, I'll never be, you know, I love animal X. Oh, I love myself some good, I'm, I'm just quoting what I hear, love myself some good pork or I love myself some good ham or burger, etc. I get that people love that taste and they may not feel like they can get that taste in a Beyond Burger or an Impossible Burger, though increasingly the the options there are tastier and tastier by the year, which is great. So, you know, anyone in that space knows that we need to incentivize the switch through equally tasty options that are also healthier for you because we know beef has health impacts, clear health impacts. So people are being motivated to switch because it's a healthier, but increasingly we want them to switch because it's as tasty or more tasty to do so because people have routine themselves into eating beef. And then there's also some identity associated with animal consumption too, uh, in many countries, whether it's economic uh, identity in terms of we've made it because now we're eating beef a lot, or in the United States, beef hamburgers, maybe there's masculinity identity associated. No, I'm not going to eat tofu. I've definitely 
been told that. And as a big, strong white male, like how do I use my privilege and identity to message on an issue that has a lot of stigma associated with it, plant-based diets or vegetarianism, or veganism and things like that. So the, there is a slow shift, but it's not happening fast enough. And, and part of that's people just are reluctant for a variety of reasons to change behavior. Now, one benefit of social norming, you know, the more influencers we see going vegan and certainly you know, we see a lot of um, uh, ultimate fighters and there's a lot of movies coming out, Game Changers, which Schwarzenegger, Governor Schwarzenegger produced, I think, which shows like you can be a strong dude. And I'm putting that in quotes because, again, a lot of the masculinity associated with switching to a plant-based diet, like you can be a very strong fighter in the ring and still be a vegan. And, and in, in the United States, particularly, that's important because I think there's still stigma associated around eating tofu and somehow you'll be weaker as a result. And of course, that's not true. So social norming will be helpful. Influencers will be helpful. More health data will be helpful because people will switch. You know, I've had family members, even though I've pestered them constantly, like go plant-based, go plant-based, didn't switch because I was pushing them. So I thought maybe I could in the, in the influence circle of family, uh, convince them to switch, but no, but it was in fact, their doctor who said, uh, you have longer life longevity if you get off this uh, red meat because this red meat is eventually going to kill you. So health motivation, uh, certainly economic motivation, because uh, plants, especially if we subsidize them instead of uh, animal product, which in the United States we do heavily subsidize, it's going to be cheaper in the long run. So yeah, I think it's doable, but it's going to require leadership within the climate community. We need more environmentalists to step up and change their behavior as a way of influencing their circles. Because I'm still, again, so this is pointedly at the environmental community to do better with behavior change uh, versus uh, necessarily the public. I'll, obviously, I want the public to come on board too, but we really need the environmental community to walk the talk on the food front and also on the smaller family front to my previous point about the Lund study. So you've touched on a lot of things that people can do to help, um, but I'm still going to ask you pointedly, how can people help? Yeah. So in terms of the smaller family front and helping message that, because there's a lot of stigma around that. And there's a lot of awful history tied to eugenics that um, we, nobody wants to repeat the messaging that came out of the eugenics movement. So how do we talk about a, a, an issue that has a lot of conflict around it, a lot, of, a lot of really bad history associated with it. But how do we talk about smaller families in a way that uh, talks about the economic incentives? Because when you have a smaller family, you have more resources for each one in that family and you give a real a fair start to each child born in a smaller family. So the Fair Start movement. So if you go to fairstartmovement.org, check out some of their resources and some of their talking points. I've done some work with them over the years. So feel free to check that out because what we need in that space is more conversation about reproductive justice and the rights there, but also the benefits of smaller families in terms of the resources afforded each child. So I encourage folks to check that out. And then on the food front, Folks probably probably already have their go-to data source, but World Resources Institute does a lot of work around shifting diets and has a lot of good resources in terms of the data, but also talking about it, helping change behavior when it comes to plant-based diets and how to talk about it with friends, family, communities, et cetera. So a lot of these, whether it's food or family planning, there's a lot of uh, personal attachment to it. And it's hard to talk about it because you're like, don't touch, you know, it's my right to eat what I want to eat. And, and that's true. Of course, it's true. No one debates that. So how to talk about these really personal issues about family planning or food consumption, take some care, take some thoughtfulness. We need to be very respectful about approaching these topics that are very personal for people. 
And both fairstartmovement.org and WRI, their shifting diets, offer some good resources in both of those spaces to have have meaningful conversations with people about it. So we're talking about it more. And I encourage people just to, on the food front, you know, uh, tr try a meal a day that is plant-based. When I went plant-based, I felt lighter, healthier, uh, just clearer in terms of my ability to operate in the day. So I found a lot of quality of life benefits from the switch, let alone the environmental benefits or the animal um, welfare benefits. But I uh, encourage people just to try, try these out either narratively or in your own behavior change practices. It's a great reminder to look into how to talk about those things because you're right, they are very personal. And so knowing how to approach it, that conversation with someone, I think is a good starting point so that the conversation actually goes well. <laughs> right. Um, okay. So with all of that in mind, all of your excellent points made, um, issues brought to light, what is the good future? Good future. Yeah. Well, our cities are talking a lot about regenerative and thankfully the, the term regenerative and even reparations are terms that are being used more and more. I just wrote a piece recently on, on climate reparations with Congresswoman Clark for Newsweek and our cities are talking constantly about regenerative ag and regenerative economies, circular economies. The more we talk about this, the more we build it out, the more the public understands it, the more policymakers use it, I think the better off we'll be. And we have to make sure those terms aren't diluted or watered down so that regenerative is truly regenerative because obviously there'll be some greenwashing here. But the good future is on the farming front, you know, regenerative predominantly plant-based. Yeah, there might be some small small examples of animal farming, but to, to a large extent that industrial factory farming is not sustainable long-term. So we do need a switch. And there are really healthy ways in which to work with animals in making the land productive. No question, because manure is a great example of that. So, and, and I have a rescue farm here with animals and uh, makes for good soil. So there, there are purposes, but the industrial scale factory farming is not sustainable. We'll have to switch off that. But yeah, the good future is all things regenerative, all things circular. Uh, and I think we can get there, but it's gonna take some, take some aggressive steps in the coming years. That's it for this week's Green Room. Thanks so much for joining us as we get to the heart of climate action. You can find out more about our work and sign up for our newsletter at envirocenter.ca. Follow us on your favorite podcast app or subscribe on YouTube. See you next time.